On Afterwards This Week, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Farah Stockman, author of the book American Made, What Happens to People When Work Disappears, looks at the impact on working-class Americans when U.S. companies move overseas. Working class to me, I mean, it meant, I came to, to see it as people for whom work represents the difference between them and the class beneath them. She's interviewed by Alyssa Quart, author and executive editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. More after this. So great to be here today. Thanks for having me on this wonderful show and interviewing the writer of American Made, Farah Stockman. It's a remarkable uh, piece of work, Farah. Thank you so much. So it's epic storytelling, naturalistic. It follows three people who worked in a factory in Indianapolis, a Rexnerd factory that was shut down. And I just wanted to find out, how did you decide to do this in the first place? Well, so in 2016, I was stunned, just like many of your listeners probably were stunned that so many Americans cast a ballot for a man who had never served a single day in government. And I am from the Rust Belt, so I started asking around, why? Why Donald Trump? And I kept hearing about factories. He's going to save my job. He's going to save my plants. You know, Trump, at the time, he was going around these rallies and he would talk about all the factories that were moving and he'd call them out. Is there anyone here from Carrier? Is there anyone here from, you know, this plant? And and the workers would, like, raise their hands and call out their years of seniority. So it was a big deal to the factory workers. And I decided to follow um, Shannon Mulcahy at this plant that Trump had tweeted about. It was in Indianapolis and it was moving to Mexico. And I just wanted to know, like, what does it feel like to be told that your job is moving away because these people over here are going to do it cheaper? And you did. You found these three people, Wally, Sharon and John. And one of the things that struck me is uh, and, you, and you write about this a little because you do write about yourself in this book. It's part of what makes it so gripping. These are not people that you necessarily grew up with. Um, these are not necessarily the sort of people that you are part of your friendship group or your family, uh, although with some exceptions. So what was it like to start to try to cross those barriers and become intimately intertwined with these sources' lives? So... It was hard at first. Uh, I knew I wanted to write about a woman because there were female steel workers in this plant and we never hear about them. So I found Shannon on Facebook and I said, you know, Shannon, would you, you know, tell me your story? And at first she she agreed to meet me for lunch at Cracker Barrel and then she got scared and canceled abruptly. And I had to I had to promise her that I wouldn't write the piece until after the factory closed she was afraid that she wouldn't get her bonus. She was afraid that the company would would punish her for talking to the media. But the first day I sat down with her and asked her about her job, she talked for like two hours straight. It was as if she had been waiting her whole life for somebody to to ask her that question. Um, So she really was proud of, of the way that she'd climbed the hierarchy in that factory, started off as a janitor, 
um, ended up in one of the most dangerous and highly paid positions on the factory floor. She was she was the heat treat operator. She she ran the furnaces and no woman had ever done that before. So it, she was really proud and she had overcome all these obstacles. Like the men did not want to train her when she first got there. They tried to get her fired. They would play tricks on her and have like explosions coming, you know, coming out of the, <laughs> the furnaces to scare her. And, you know, she just stuck to it. Um, she had been a battered woman. She'd been in a relationship with a violent man and the job helped her escape that relationship. Um, so the job meant a lot to her. And over time, I, you know, I really got to know her. I, I ended up, I would go to her house in the morning. Well, her shift at that point was from like, I think it was like two in the afternoon to 10 at night. And she had no time outside of that. So I would go to her house and drive to work with her and jump out of the car, like right before she turned into the factory. And that was how I ended up hearing so much of her story during the, during the time that the plant was shutting down. And, um, I mean, I ended up following her for four years, so we got closer and she started trusting me to come inside the house and to be at like important family events, like when her daughter got a, a scholarship. Yeah, that was amazing. The, at Purdue, right, she, um, her daughter yeah. gets a scholarship. And, and one of the things that keeps coming up to me in this book is that these people, they're not poor exactly, right? They are middle class. They make... 60,000, she made 68,000, Sharon. And yet uh, there's so many bills to pay. There's the college, there's, uh, you know, her Carmela, her granddaughter who's uh, disabled medical, medical care. There's car, car insurance and uh, there's uh, mortgages. And so what looked like, even in good times, what looked like quite a bit of money in the, by the end of the day, because we have so, uh, such a small social, social safety net in America, is actually not that large. And that's what they're holding on to. That's what all these people are holding on to with their jobs is this middle-class life that's slipping away. In my, my book, Squeezed, uh, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, I call it the middle precariat, the precarious yeah. middle class. And these folks sort of have a lot in common with that class, I'd say. And uh, what does it mean when you have made it to that place, to 68,000 a year, 60,000 a year, and you feel like you're going to be pushed back down the ladder. That was sort of the feeling I got in all three of these stories. Yeah, I loved that you used the term um, "middle precariat" in your in your book. Um, I really, I really came to understand the working class as sep- You know, middle class is kind of an income term. Working class to me, I mean, it meant. I came to to see it as people for whom work represents the difference between them and the class beneath them, right? These were people who, so Shannon grew up on food stamps in a trailer park and she looked back with shame at having, you know, she hated going grocery shopping with her mother because her mother used food stamps. That was a humiliation. So to her, it was a matter, a point of pride to no longer need the safety net, to no longer um, look for a check from the government. After the plant closed, John, who was another worker that I followed, he had to run the gauntlet of the unemployment insurance. And he was like, okay, I'll do it because I paid into the system all my life. But 
the idea of accepting, you know, welfare or accepting a system that he hadn't paid into was abhorrent to him. It was abhorrent to him. And all of these workers knew people who who kind of gamed the system to live off a social safety net or to 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 sort of not work as hard as they, they could be. They actually looked down on those people and they wanted a job and needed a job. And so this notion of um, I think sometimes Democrats tear out their hair and say, why does why don't they why do they vote against their own interests? And I think the reason is that like the working class, you know, tends to want to work. These 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 factory jobs were the most coveted jobs in the community. Like Shannon would um, when her friends from high school would ask her where she's working, she she would tell them and she would see envy across their faces because these were $25 an hour jobs that you could get without, without a college degree. So right out of high school, without, without even a GED in some cases. I mean, they were supposed to have a GED, but a lot of them lied and said, and about it and got in anyway. So these were, these were family supporting jobs with pension, with healthcare and all of that stuff. And, and that's that that almost doesn't exist anymore, right? So, uh, you know, what you saw was those were the jobs that were leaving and going overseas, right? Because they paid so much, that though that is why it made sense for the company to move them to a place where people would only accept, you know, would only need three dollars an hour or one dollar an hour. So um, I really ended up. Um, seeing what it felt like to lose the this these were the last of those kinds of jobs these were the last and and to someone like shannon you know these were jobs that were like passed down in families you could only actually get into that factory if you knew someone who was already working there it wasn't easy to get a job like that they were very precious and so i think um you know especially for for people who came from families that had been there for generations it, it was a shock. It was a real shock, especially to the white people who work in that factory, especially to the men. I think, um, you know, it was also a shock to Shannon too, just because she thought, man, I finally, I finally made it somewhere. I crawled up and made it. And then boom, it's like the rug is pulled out from under her. I mean, I thought of it, this was the phrase I gave it in my book, which was, uh, they're losing the narrative of their life. So some of this is ec- economic, but some of this is like existential and personal, right? That she's defined herself by this, especially uh, Shannon, because Shannon uh, escaped Dan, right? Who was this really abusive yeah. guy, that the yeah. work was the way out. The work was, so the work was in a way like a form of tra- healing from trauma, even though itself, some people would have found it traumatic because it, it's very dangerous work, right? But that it so much was tied up for her with the work, right? Yeah, think of how many, I mean, that was my biggest takeaway from this book is how much we get out of our job beyond the paycheck, right? How many times have you been to a dinner party and been asked like, so what do you do? And what people are really right. asking is, <laughs> yeah. you know, who are you? How, how important are you, right? I mean, for these people, it was a bowling team. It was uh, financial advice. It was um, it was a reason to get up in the morning. You had, you know, you felt like you were contributing to society. You're part of the world. 
Wally, um, who was one of the workers that I followed, um, had served a stint in prison. And this factory helped him get back on his feet. And he got a whole social life and a whole group of friends that, you know, had 401k plans and told him how to get on the 401k plan that, that lent him money to buy a rental house, which he fixed up and, and then started renting for, for you know, as a, side, as a side business. And so you, you see all of the things that these factory workers got out of a factory. It was, it was almost like all the things I get out of being a college graduate, like the people who, when I, if I were to look for a job, that's my network. I would go back to that network and say, is there something where you are? And after the factory closed, they went back to that network and to their friends, where did you get on? Can I get on with you? You know, can you get me on here or there? And, you know, the closure of these plants is hitting the same groups over and over and over again, weakening their social network. And these people used to be that, you know, have the most coveted jobs. And now all of a sudden they've joined everybody else who's, who's earning $14 an hour. Um, so, you know, it was really interesting by the way, to, to be out there on the picket line with them, or, you know, they, they would have these signs before the plant closed down, they'd have these rallies by the road and say, keep it made in America. And, you know, a lot of people would honk and support, but some people would put up their middle finger and say like, you know, welcome to America. We've been out here earning $14 an hour this whole time. And so, you know, there were some people who weren't sympathetic because they were saying, you guys have had those good union jobs for a long time and none of the rest of us have. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting also is how this is in parallel with the decline of unions, and it's not a coincidence, right? Uh, a third of union, a uh, third of American workers were in unions in the 1950s, and now it's 12 percent. In 2016, it was 12 percent. It's probably yeah. smaller now. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that's what I was going to ask you next. I mean, how how do you think the union did in terms of this particular plant that you were following, and what? could unions be doing better? Uh, what could people be doing better to be part of, of their unions to try to save their jobs? Man, it is really tough. And you can sort of see how yeah, unions get in a death spiral. And how, I mean, so thinking back to the gold, the golden years of American manufacturing, you had, um, you had, I hate to say it, but you had low immigration and you had a lot of kind of militant strikes and a, a lot of stuff that that came to make those those manufacturing jobs really good paying jobs um once those factories started moving away people stopped demanding stuff from the company right they stopped demanding profit sharing and uh, you know higher pay and shorter working hours by the end they're just begging for their job and really, the, the union over the last 10 years at this plant, it was a very thankless task to serve on the union because all you were doing was sitting around and negotiating which thing are we going to give up next? Which, which benefit that, you know, our dads and uncles fought for are we going to give up next? Because that's what it took. The company asked them to take a 30% pay cut. Literally, that was their Something. opening bid. And Gambit. <laughs> the union rallied workers to reject that. 
Um, but then they got a second tier. So new workers are hired at, uh, at a lower pay permanently forever. And, um, and then the plant moved. And so globalization and, and the ease with which these, these, these factories could, could be moved to, to places where people work much cheaper, that has to ruin the leverage of, of unions who worked in those plants because now there's an alternative. Now there's a much cheaper labor force that's hungry and willing to work and not looking for a smoke break and doesn't, by the way, need any alcohol treatment. <laughs> like, you know, it, it was it, it was really um, it was really tough. And then as unions start declining, people start losing faith in the unions because they're not producing. They're not getting me higher wages. And and so it, it was I call it a death spiral because they're also not able to get politicians elected who will then protect them. And so you see right to work come back to Indiana. Um, and Republican laws that then say, well, you don't really have to pay your union dues, and it just goes from there. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine some in some of the companies, uh, some of the, the characters get jobs later on, um, and I'm trying to remember whether, you know, after, they're, after the plant closes, and whether any of those jobs are unionized. Were they the jobs they were in after the plant closed? Well, a lot of people got on at a, a plant called Allison, which Allison Transmission, which was a very old plant. Um, it, it had been there a long time and they were hired at the bottom tier. So they were earning $14 an hour from 25. Um, so, and it would take them a couple of years to get back up to the top tier. So they, they were union jobs, but they were definitely not as well paid. Um, people, a few people got on at uh, Eli Lilly, which is a pharmaceutical manufacturer, and they started making medicines and they were they were paid as well. They, they were the ones who were paid pretty good. They were paid maybe um, as well as the as they've been paid at Rexnord. Um, John, who I followed, he had been this diehard union man, you know, the grandson of a coal miner. His 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 father-in-law had been an auto worker, um, and he was really really into the union. And he agonized after the after the factory closed about whether he should be become a steel worker again. He actually finally had a chance to get on uh, in a plant that would have made him a steel worker again, or go work in a hospital. And he ended up taking a lower paying job at a hospital because he said, you know, no, this hospital is not going anywhere. And I, I, I've already been through two plant closings. I don't know if that factory is going to remain. And so people were sort of basically ended up saying, like, the thing I've devoted my life to doesn't have a future. And so I better get on at a hospital. Hospitals Healthcare is like the new factory. That's the new place where blue-collar people could actually earn a living wage and have a, make a pretty good job without going back to college or going to get a, a lot more education. Um, I have to yeah. say that. I mean, not to sound. Not, oh, go ahead. Yeah, not to sound over, over overly bleak, but your book it really makes a clear point about how like death and disease are its own have become a commodity or like it's its own kind of product industry. in these communities industry yeah. because um, there's such 
so you and I were in our 40s, right? And your, your subjects are in their 40s, but everybody around them is dying. And yeah. it's just a very different life than, you know, as you point out in your book, like kind of elderly, I think an elderly relative had passed away and one friend from college, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, my, my sister, my ex-boyfriend, my kid, you know, these terrible levels of death. So what's that like? I mean, what's that like to be in a community where, and I don't want to, no spoilers, but people, important people in this book die as well. Like what, yeah. what is that? What, what does that do when you're to you as a reporter and yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a real wake up call and uh, Deaths of Despair, that book came out right, um, right as I was reporting this and it, it made, you know, it's making the case. It's saying that for, for, for the white working class for the first time, uh, we're seeing uh, people live, you know, their life expectancy is, is going down. And a lot of times it's because of opioid abuse. Um, Shannon, every week it felt like someone Shannon knew pretty well died of an opioid um, uh, overdose. People who are very close to them died. And when you, what you see when you look at the data is that places that experience unemployment shocks, they get opioid deaths. You know, drug abuse goes up. So these are not healthy communities. They're not healthy places to be. People need jobs. <laughs> they, they just do. They, they need jobs and they want to work. Um, and in places where uh, work disappears, you see a lot of that. You see a lot of deaths from drugs. Yeah, and, and also hypertension, heart attacks, all this other yes. stuff too, because there's there's so, people are undertreated, as you were saying, the Angus Deaton book, um, Deaths of Despair. So there's also depression, right? Mm -hmm. um, oh, and yeah. you know, people who have are born, you know, have congenital uh, illnesses, children that I don't know what their uh, uh, prenatal care was like. I mean, so there you see a kind of constellation of this stuff. It's pretty grim, huh? Well. Yeah, you see, yeah, let me, let me, <laughs> what, one of my big takeaways was, was this healthcare piece, because when I started researching the book, Chuck Jones, the union leader told me, right, somebody's gonna, you know, somebody's gonna die, basically. And I, I had walked into this union hall saying, like, you know, you'll all just get in saying to myself, you'll all just get more other jobs, right? I'd interviewed so many economists who told me they're going to get employed again and they might even get better jobs. So this is capitalism and, you know, stop essentially what's the big deal. Um, and Chuck Jones, the union president had told me like, it's life and death. Somebody's going to lose their house. Then they're going to lose their truck. They're going to lose their wife. Their wife's going to leave them. And eventually they're going to lose their life. That's what he told me. He'd been through eight plant closings, around eight plant closings at that point. And I was like, I didn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was like, what are you talking about? Um, and by the end, he was out of about 300 workers that were laid off, three, three of them died within a year. Um, one uh, drank himself to death, it, it, it appears. Another um, seemed to have a uh, die of a liver, liver disease. Um, and then uh, the one I followed, who was I was deeply close to, um, passed away because he had chest pains and didn't go to the hospital because he didn't have health insurance. And so, you know, in a in, as 
jobs become more precarious and and this idea of staying for life with one company disappears we have to really ask ourselves as a country should we be tying healthcare to employment it's 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 crazy that um that uh, this worker who i loved and followed closely in the book died because of lack of health insurance it's crazy that when you lose your job you lose your health insurance you saw that during the pandemic how insane it was that in the middle of a pandemic people did not just lose their jobs they lost their health insurance and so you know wh- why are we still in that situation in the year 2021 Yes, yeah, one of the many things that we need to start thinking about, right? To decouple healthcare from from jobs. To de- I mean, to some extent, I mean, decouple HR. I mean, uh, you know, things like racism on the job or harassment, which some of the subjects in this book experience too. That they're always tied to the employer. There, there needs to be uh, better checks and balances in place and, and assistance for people that are outside of jobs. And I think you make the case eloquently, you know, just by showing these people's lives. I was really struck by some of the kind of racist experiences that some of the uh, black workers had at the plant. I mean, do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, I mean, it was a real education to me. Um, Wally, who was the black um, bearing assembler that I followed, who was so optimistic and so beloved at the plant. He uh, got into that plant because his uncle had worked there and his uncle got into the plant in the 60s because the NAACP was uh, really pushing for them to start hiring black people. And uh, he got hired and ended up as a janitor. He went and complained to the union. Why did you make me a janitor? I've been to technical school. I know how to operate a machine. And the union steward said, like, we know you know how to operate a machine. It's just that there's only so many jobs in this building. And if you get one of those jobs operating machine, that means our son or our nephew can't have one. And that sort of that just brought home this idea that jobs are tribal. We give jobs and to people in our families, to people we love, to people we consider to be like us. And um, you know, for a long time, those good-paying union jobs were literally passed down like family heirlooms in that plant. And it, it took the Civil Rights Act um, for Wally's uncle to be able to operate a machine because of the Civil Rights Act. The day after it passed, he went to his boss and said, I want to operate a machine because machine operators made twice what a janitor makes. And so had it not been for the Civil Rights Act, he'd still be a janitor making, you know, he'd have made half the money over his lifetime. Um, they make him they make him a machine operator. He gets to operate a grinding machine. And then the guy who's supposed to train him refuses to even speak to him. And so he has to learn that the was, job by, by literally watching from afar. Which is part of why you explain later, and I'll, I'll get to this later too again, but that a lot of the black workers were willing to train their uh, Mexican replacements when the white workers weren't, right? Because they had, there were some kind of recognition of, first of all, the racism of not retraining the Mexicans, but also of the historical precedent, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I went in there after I started understanding why so many of the of the white workers were 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 supporting Trump. You know, this idea of globalization and the idea that Trump was promising to save their factory jobs. It stopped being a mystery to me why white workers were voting for Trump. The mystery was why didn't the black workers working alongside them vote for Trump? That's what I started wondering. Why didn't they have the same analysis? And, um, you know, a lot of those black workers, A, they, they, never, they never expected the company to care about them. They never expected their job to be quite as secure. And they, they heard the racist dog whistles. They heard, uh, you know, they heard racism in this notion that we shouldn't, we shouldn't give those jobs to those people because these jobs are ours, right? Um, it, it, it was really, um, you know, there were some black workers who refused to train the Mexicans, but the, the most unapologetic trainers, the first people to raise their hands um, seem to be these uh, these black workers who said, "Hey, you know, there's there's no big deal of training the Mexicans. Let's do it because um, you know they're workers too, and somebody trained us. We'll train them and keep it moving, right? We're not going to save the plant. Might as well ride the wave on out. That's what one of the guys said. And you know, their 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 friends who were in the union." particularly, you know, these white diehard union guys who'd been in the union and been in the plant for generations were shocked. They couldn't believe it. You know, why are you selling us out? Why can't we stand together and fight for our job? So, you know, it really showed me in very vivid terms why um, it was so hard for the workers to speak with one voice and why they all sort of reacted differently to the to, to Trump himself. Yeah, I mean, Trump is sort of a better or worse, a character in your book, because he has to be. He, he's defining um, a lot of the lies are, that were t- being told to these workers, that their jobs would be saved in, at, the, at the carrier plant as well. Um, and then also uh, a lot of the growing, uh, I, I guess there's no other word for it, racist tendencies of these white workers that then find, you know, new meaning as Trump aficionados. So I think it's really interesting. He's, it starts out, actually, the book starts out with Trump's election. So how did you see that? And you also track how the characters, the subjects, they change their attitudes towards Trump over the course of the four years that you reported. That was fascinating also. <clears throat> yeah. I wanted my book to be more sort of the opposite of the political quote that you find in a normal article, like a normal article will just give you like a boom, here's what I think of Trump in in one moment in time. And in reality, people change their minds. They vacillate, different things happen and they react to the news. So I really saw these people as bellwethers and of of American public opinion and in many ways better bellwethers than my own social circle, right? My social circle is... I don't think I interact on a daily basis with anyone who doesn't have a college degree. And yet two thirds of Americans don't have a, a bachelor's degree. And so um, that was that was stunning for me to learn in the process of writing this book. Um, but to get to get back to your point, I mean, I think that um, from the perspective of a lot of the white workers, 
you know, especially the white men, they had, you know, they were seeing their earning power go down, their union power go down. Uh, they had seen nothing but losses, essentially, uh, in, in their wages over 30 years. And they were very pessimistic about the future um, because the, the future, you know, the whole concept of optimism isn't about where you've been, it's about where you're going. And so in many ways, the black workers were more optimistic about the future. They'd seen the election of a black president. They'd, they'd seen social progress in certain ways. Um, whereas, you know, the white workers, especially the men, were just, they were just seeing losses and they were just seeing their social status decline, right? So not only are they earning less, um, but they're actually, um, you know, being called out for their privilege, being called out for for uh, for being racist. You know, they're they they are they are um, feeling much less secure, and so um, that that was that came through a lot. And you know, we've had this debate uh, in, in elite circles about why the white working class voted for Trump. And, you know, is it economic insecurity or is it racial insecurity um, or economic anxiety or racial anxiety? Look, when you follow a dying factory up close, you can it's almost impossible to disentangle the two. They are the one and the same because, it, you know, I'm angry that my factory job is moving to Mexico. Well, what is that economic insecurity or racial insecurity? If I'm angry that the blue collar jobs that remain in my town, painting, roofing, uh, carpentry or or um, lawn care, janitorial services, that those are being done by undocumented immigrants for less pay than I would accept. What is that economic insecurity or racial insecurity? Um, if I if my cousin can't get a job in the pipe fitters union because they're only accepting blacks and Native Americans that year. Where do you where does that fit? And so, you know, I just came to understand that the scarcity, the mind of scarcity, um, this zero sum thinking that a lot of white working class people have about, well, if, if there's only so many jobs in this building and if you get one, that means I can't have one or my son can't have one. It's real. It is actually reality. There isn't an there is not an infinite number of jobs of good paying jobs. I mean, and so that is. Um, that, yeah. That's where that's an I inspired sort of, point. Yeah, I came to understand that's it, that. Farrah, that's that's inspired. Yeah, finish what you're saying. I'm sorry about that. What oh no, you I did, it, it. It was it was a light bulb went off because you know we intellectuals mm -hmm. talk about racial justice as something you know it's dignity. It's something that you know that it's something if it's something that can be expandable to all. And yet when working class people think about it, it's all it's about is who gets dibs on the jobs, who gets first dibs on the jobs. That's what it's about. I mean, I, what I was trying to say back is that's very inspired point. I feel like you should be doing political messaging <laughs> because the uh, which I hope this book, uh, American Made, will be taken up and used in future campaigns as a, a bit of a guide, really, because this cross-section of economic and racial anxiety, that's a brilliant point. And it's obviously, in some ways, it's common sense, but people don't think of it. So um, thank you. Thank you for your clarity. So speaking of which, 
So one of the people in your book, you go into his garage after a number of years, and you see he has a Confederate flag in there. And this is, again, no spoilers. This is someone that you have gotten to know over these years. And I was going to ask, like, what is that like? You've, you have forged these relationships with white working class Trump supporters. Um, you, you came to like them. I, I mean, you might even be beyond really like them. And then you see that they really are this thing that you were uh, afraid they were to begin with, or you, you, you're frightened that that might be the case. I mean, how do you then continue to report uh, with the same level of um, interest and authenticity? Yeah, I mean, it's that really um, <laughs> prompted the longest conversation that we'd ever had, sort of, I don't know, a come to Jesus conversation where you I you have to really examine and and interrogate what are we talking about? Does this Confederate flag mean to you what it means to me? Um, and if it doesn't, um, you know, how credible are you as a person if you don't know what this Confederate flag actually stands for? Right. Um, and so it was a it was a hard conversation. And but I I think look, I was blessed to have a great education, but even my great education didn't teach me a whole heck of a lot about American history, and I think. Uh, if you, the factory workers in Indiana also were not taught a whole heck of a lot about American history. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to delve in and to let people know. Um, because once you do know, um, you can see that workers have a lot more in common with each other than they do with the, the rich people who are trying to separate and divide them. Um, once you know, once you can really look back at the history of the labor movement, you know that they were stronger together. They were stronger when they stood side by side, and and they're still uh, they're still one of the most powerful progressive forces in this country. Our labor unions they're the most among the most interracial political forces in this country, and so um, I do think that um, we need to just we need to keep listening to people and understand where they're coming from. You got to meet people where they are. If you get too far out yeah. ahead of them, you can't lead them. You, and, and I think that's part of what's happened is um, our our politicians are increasingly educated, uh, college educated, and increasingly divorced from the people that they claim to champion and in both parties. Um, but really you're seeing that um, we can't, we don't know how to talk to the majority of Americans anymore because we we literally don't, um, we literally don't do it. So it was interesting, uh, also towards the end of the book, one of the subjects said that they had asked you for political advice. Uh, and and it, it, the implication was that you had sort of not wanted to do the Heisenberg principle thing where you change your subject's point of view by, by teaching them things. But I thought that was really interesting. I mean, was that something that came up where people would ask your opinion of things and you held back or you would sort of try to teach them subtly without changing them too much? Or how, how did that, that play that out? Was, that was one of the hardest things about the book is figuring out how 
you know, how much to get involved in their lives or um, especially Shannon. I mean, Shannon, she had a disabled granddaughter who needed to get into school. Like, do you help her get it? You know, um, and like basically Shannon's life was changed when I wrote the initial article about her in 2017. The, the only reason she kept she stayed in her house was because a rich lawyer in New York who read that article paid off her mortgage. So like the cat was out of the bag, like she'd her life had already been changed. And so um, so there was that. But I never I wanted to understand her view of politics without without influencing it. And so, you know, Shannon wasn't all that comfortable expressing her views. She didn't think her views were um, were important. She said the president of the United States is too important a thing for me to have an opinion about it. I just think we should support oh. the president, whoever it is. Like she would have things like that to say. Um, and so it really, you know, I tried to take a step back so I could really hear her. And in the end, it was COVID that changed her mind about Trump. Um, you know, Stormy Daniels, you know, she knew the president had slept with Stormy Daniels, but it didn't bother her because she was like, that's what men do. Men lie. They cheat. Everyone I know lies and cheats. Uh, every man I know does. She's like, it, I mean, for her, it was more weird that Obama had this perfect family. I mean, Obama was strange to her because of his perfection. Whereas every family she knew was a broken family with, you know, kids from different, you know, uh, different um parents and you know mixed families she no one had a perfect nuclear family like 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 obama's um but in the end COVID is what changed her mind she ended up um really getting angry at him for bullying people for wearing masks by this time her daughter's a nurse and so you know her daughter is telling her that uh, Trump is spreading misinformation about the virus and Trump supporters are spreading it. And, you know, Shannon was scared to death of COVID. And she really, um, she really turned on the president uh, at that time. And it, it happened in like three months. She just turned on a dime in three months. And part of it is because she lost her job. She, she had gotten on finally at another factory and was doing great. And at that point, she was okay with the way the country was going. And boom, COVID happened. She loses her job. And, you know, she does a 180. She had an awakening. And it, it was interesting. There's another character who had a very, I mean, a lot of the subjects have these really intense love lives with ex wives and ex-girlfriends and kids who are, you know, troubled. And um, did you ever feel kind of uh, conscripted to, to give advice, like a personal advice, romantic advice, babysitting? I mean, was there, were there lines that people tried to get you to cross or that you actually had to cross? I mean, not so much. I, I you know... I spent a lot of time with Wally and his family. I went to his family reunion. I went to church with them. Um, you know, I hung out as much as I could. And sometimes it can just be a fly on the wall. I had to say, like, hey, I'm a reporter. I'm taking notes. I had to tell people that sometimes. But, some, you know, a lot of people, you know, if you would have, were to have walked into a room, you would have thought I was just a, like a, a family friend or a member of the family. Um I didn't, you know, I didn't, 
uh, I tried not to cross any lines, but you have to be a human being and you have to care about them as human beings. You, you, I'm sure I, I should ask you the same question and you're, cause you've got, um, it's, you must've gotten quite close to the characters in your book. Yeah. I mean, I started to, they definitely got checks from people with parts of it were published in advance or, um, uh, I actually wound up helping one of the subjects find a better school for her son. But I think what I would just do is I would, that was where I'd stop. I'd maybe give some advice, but I wouldn't, I mean, I have no people who, yeah, help people pay their rent, you know, reporters. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I would offer advice because I felt like it, this would be the kind of capital that anyone in a middle class position would have. They would just know what the good schools in their area were. So it seemed um, actively unfair that uh, the, she was a caregiver uh, a nanny in Queens, that she wouldn't know that, you know, that she wouldn't have access to know which were the best schools for her son. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we all make our is, own rules. Yeah. It is striking. Like, information itself is not equitably distributed, right? And what, you know, how do you do it? What do you do about that? <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, this is part of why Shannon realizes at the end what she realizes because she has an educated, daughter right so there's sort of there's right. like a oh yeah there's a natural no, her daughter her daughter definitely of... her her daughter definitely changed after getting a college degree the other thing that changed her is that because she was jobless she um accepted an invitation from a labor organizer to start to start um protesting trump at these trump rallies and you know, that was such an interesting experience because these labor organizers are college educated and there's this total disconnect between them culturally and 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 the and the workers they're trying to organize. There was this moment where Shannon's in the car with him and they're going to a, a, a Trump rally and she has this book from that's been written by a psychic medium named John Edward. And oh, I she's love this like, part. Yeah. it's the first book she's read since seventh grade. And she's gushing about how great it is. And the labor organizer says, thinks she's talking about John Edwards, the former presidential candidate, the one who dropped out to to because he had a baby with his mistress. And uh, he says to Shannon, I didn't know he wrote a book, you know, and it was like, they're talking about to two totally different people and, you know, they don't even know who the other person is, right? You know, he's never heard of the psychic medium and Shannon's never heard of the failed presidential candidate. But that just to me symbolizes how a lot of times we are trying to champion the interests of the working class and we don't even know the first thing about them. It reminds me of, uh, there's a University of Wisconsin professor, Kathy Kramer, uh, who studied people in rural Wisconsin, and we had yeah. I wrote a piece about her once, and she we we sort of thought of it as cultural inequality. So it's not it is income again. It's like the way that race and economic inequality are in, um, in, uh, intertwined. Having certain kinds of cultural understandings is also intertwined with economics, right? Even though they may not cost anything, they're sort of correlated, right, with, with right. being of a certain class that you would right. understand, I, you know, which Edwards was important, right? That, <laughs> right? I, I stayed away from, from the term middle class and, and really focused on working class, which I took to mean don't have a four-year BA. Don't, don't have a four-year college degree. Yeah. You didn't have a BA. No, you're absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, 
yeah, the income, the income definition of class is really problematic. Um, because as you're saying, there are people who, like the people in my last book, who are adjuncts who make $30,000 a year, who would th see themselves as middle class, right? And again, it, it's, it's related to their education um, right. and their self-identification, right? Right, yeah. right. And there's so much that about being working class that's cultural, right? If you, if you were ended up, uh, you know, there's some working class people who got rich in construction maybe, and they might make a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars a year, but they still culturally believe in this. You know, uh, they you know they believe that this te the technical knowledge is more important than the four year degree. They believe you know they might be gun owners. They might you know their eating habits. They all smoked. Like there were things that that Wally, Shannon, and John all had in common that I didn't share at all. And so even though I was a woman, so I had that in common with Shannon, I'm, I'm the descendant of slaves, I had that in common with Wally, but we, um, you know, they had much more in common culturally with each other than they did with me. And I just had to come to realize that. I, I tell this funny yeah. story of trying, trying to get them to go to a, like a fancy restaurant in, in Indianapolis and nobody wanted to go. Nobody was interested in that. And it took me a long time to realize they would have hated that restaurant. They would have thought it was super pretentious. And they made fun of me all the time by the, by the kind of beer that I would order. Like I'd order these craft beers and John would be like, what the hell is that? Yeah, you called it, there was a map that somebody had drawn, artisanal BS. That was the, artisanal. I'm <laughs> so that was the part I'm of, in, uh, you know, yeah, know thyself. I'm yeah. in the artisanal BS. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's the Kim Wong case at the thing. end of your book. <laughs> yeah. I'm a fancy pants. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so, but you overcame that when you, I mean, when you'd interview them and, um, you know, there are certain kinds of language that I really love that I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but, uh, the, the book calls them, uh, the people in the book call the people who train the Mexican workers uh, partaking in the suck-ass clause. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing. Like some of the language that people were using was, was just uh, lively to the extreme. Uh, and when they say suck-ass clause, what do they mean when they say that? So a suck-ass is somebody who sucks up to the boss and um, yes. who does what management wants. And so, you know, the, the diehard union people thought of Shannon as a suck ass because Shannon would give her bosses like birthday cards and the company would like have milestone work anniversary gifts. Like if you've been there for a certain number of years, you could have a steak dinner with your boss. And like, you know, to John, who was a, this union guy, only a suck ass would go to a dinner like that. And Shannon was all of Shannon would never miss a dinner like that. So that was um, even inside the plan. There were differences of opinion about how much to be in bed with management. And um so yes, if you, the suck ass clause in the contract was if you trained your Mexican replacement, you would get a small bonus. And, um, you know, only a suck ass would do that. They called them scabs, you were a scab. So, um, you know, they had a whole vocabulary that I had to learn. And if you think about it, you know, the way progressives in college campuses talk now, there's a whole vocabulary there that, that you have yeah. to learn. And so we're not even talking to each other, right? Because we, we, we have our own languages. 
And, and if you if you don't learn the lingo, it's it's hard to really understand what, what people are even talking about. I mean, one working class uh, uh, source that I was interviewing said to me recently, you know, what's a misogynist? Why do you keep why do you guys keep talking about misogyny? And I thought that was really interesting. Like that's that's some of this is about vocabulary and some of it's framing, but some of it's just literally vocabulary. Yeah, no, they have. And and I, I think it's kind of it's kind of poisonous because, you know, now there's this idea that if you don't use these if you don't use the right terms, right, if you don't use or the right pronouns or the right this and that, you cannot, you know, even be part of the conversation. And so how do you teach working class people how what those terms are? You shouldn't have to go to graduate school or college to learn them. And maybe young people are learning them. I don't mean to to, to denigrate those conversations, I think they're really important. But if you have to go to college in order to know how to talk like that, you're already cutting yourself off from the majority of people. And not only the majority of people in the country, but the majority of people who are the least advantaged. Um, and so we have to find a way to um, be a little bit more forgiving towards those who haven't had the opportunity to learn what those terms are and a little less rigid about um, about uh, how to hear from them, right? We, we need to have much more, convers- many more conversations and a lot more connections. And, and by forcing people to talk in a certain way that they, that they haven't been taught to talk, you, you know, you, you cut yourself off from them. And they're the very people I mean, who that's need a- to hear it, right? They're the exact people who need yeah. to have those conversations. I should say that one of the that, one of the workers from Rexnord, uh, a white guy named Brian, got on an Eli Lilly, and even though it was a factory, it had a totally different corporate culture. It had, um, you know, it had um, a, a questionnaire he had to sit down and fill out was, "Are you man or woman, or prefer not to say?" And you know the whole, the corporate culture was very um, accepting of trans people. They were it was very accepting of uh, folks from all countries. And he just he was like a fish out of water. He didn't know he didn't know how to act in that factory because it. And he's like, you know, it's a great job, but I spend my days alone. I don't know anyone here. And, you know, he said, I don't, I don't, it's not bad by no means, but I stepped into the, their world. They didn't step into mine. And so he, he just, yeah, that was, that was amazing. He had to relearn everything. That was an amazing moment. Also that they go to the gym at breaks rather than smoking and eating donuts and, Literally, there's a smokehouse at the Rex Nerd. Like, just the, the I, I hope I'm getting uh, it across to viewers, just the level of detail in this book that's so, for instance, things I didn't, like Cracker Barrel, the status of Cracker Barrel, which is a chain I, when I reported in the South that I went to, but like, that was interesting too, just like that as a place. Or, um, uh, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, the things like that, like, uh, you know, kind of blue state folks, you know, who are elite might not think, oh, going to the gym at lunch hour, that's a real marker, but <laughs> it, it was to some of these factory workers, right? Absolutely. And what I find is when it comes to going to another country and t- being tolerant of another culture and inquisitive about it, we, you know, we're all about that, right? I've traveled all over the world and 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 been able to look at a, a cult, another culture in Kenya or another culture in Pakistan and be able to observe it and experience it. 
But in our own country, when we go to experience another culture, let's say in, in the deep south or in Texas or in Indiana, we are um, disdainful of it and far less inquisitive about it because it's, you know, we're ashamed of it maybe, or, or you know, we, we think it shouldn't, it shouldn't exist or it's backward. Or, and, and I just think sometimes we have to say, that's a, a different culture. Let's ask, let's ask more questions about it and understand it. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but, um, you know, to be able to really engage with them and, and, and understand them, you, you can't just start from a, a place of judgment. I mean, part of what you, you note in your bio that you live in Michigan as well as Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I wonder if like part of your emphasis on that or even the fact that you still live there partially, and I want to know what that means too, was to, to sort of saturate yourself more with some of these communities that you're writing about and not uh, just keep yourself in, you know, Porter Square sipping a chai or whatever, right? <laughs> you know, this book reconnected me, even to members of my own family. I have a ton of family members in Detroit. And, you know, Detroit's really struggled since the auto plants shut yes. down. Um, my A lot of my family originally came from the Deep South and they moved up to Detroit. Um, they were, they were, Black sharecroppers under Jim Crow, they moved to Detroit and had, you know, some years of, of great jobs, right? And then boom, all of a sudden, uh, the plants closed down and people, people, people struggle. Um, so, you know, you can, ha- you can be a black woman in Detroit with two master's degrees earning $30,000 a year and not, not quite being able to make ends meet. And I think, it's easy to sit in Boston and not know that even, even though I have members of my own family, it just took me a long time to really truly understand what folks um, economic reality is like. And so I am really grateful to people in my book, especially Wally for um, sort of helping me reconnect with, with the reality of even members of my own family. Yeah. Wally is, this incredible character in your book. I mean, he's just got this huge heart. He's taking care of, I think it's the, stop me if I got this wrong. It's the, it's not really his stepdaughter. It's his ex-girlfriend's daughter. Yeah. He stepped into to to parent who's herself pretty sullen. Isn't like a, no cute, like Hollywood uh, stepdaughter who shows up at your doorstep. She's difficult, right? And he's just, he seemed to just have such a huge soul, good, amazing person, right? So what did you, I mean, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but how are you processing uh, getting to know him and what happened after to him? I'm still very much in touch with his family. um, And um, I think of him every day. I think of him every day. So I want to just get back to the whole, the, the Mexican worker retraining thing, because there's something that's very much uh, uh, Hunger Games element around this, you know. Um, do you, what do you make of this when the Mexican workers start to come in and people are retraining people, you know, creating their own obsolescence, right? Like it's, they're literally going to be put to pasture when they retrain these people. It's, so, it's some of the most intense scenes in your book. Yeah, so I actually, I was lucky to, 
be able to go down to Monterey, Mexico and find the workers who were trained. I found the one Shannon trained and um, some others, and I interviewed them about what it was like. And they were very moved by the whole experience. Um, uh, one of them told me that before he went up there, he thought, oh, this is just capitalism. You know, this is just the way it works. And um, he thought it would be a good thing to bring the factory to Mexico. But after meeting um, the people in Indiana, he was forced to confront this idea that the company was throwing its own workers away and that the company was going to throw him away too someday. And so the two workers that I met who trained, um, who, who were trained, they both left for other jobs within six months. Um, they were, uh, they saw a company that, that didn't care about its workers and they didn't see a future at that company. So that was really interesting to hear from them. One said, um, the guy who uh, Shannon trained told me, I felt like an executioner. I felt like an assassin. And it, it was just, um, that was a really eye opener. It was a big eye opener to me. Um, I also realized that those, um, those Mexican workers had quite a bit of technical training already. They had, they had been trained in high school in some cases to work in factories. And so Mexico had a much better training system in place than the Americans did. And um, they were, those workers were in some ways much more prepared to take over um, those jobs and to be a part of the global economy. One of them, Abraham, had you know he travels all over the world travels to india travels travels around working with indians who are building things and so it was hard to imagine shannon or 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 john or wally being sent to india to 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 work with people um so i i sort of got this picture of a, a rising technically skilled manufacturing labor force that is international and our workers are not really a part of it. Um, they are, um, they've been kept out of it. And I think part of it is because we, uh, we don't, we didn't believe in having an industrial policy. We just, we jumped into the, to these uh, free trade agreements and, and, and embrace globalization without really thinking through how to prepare our workers for the future. And I hope, I hope that, um, that's being reversed. I think it is. I think now people are much more willing to talk about industrial policy and apprenticeships and 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 partnerships between unions and community colleges to actually train the next generation. But for a long time, it was like, oh, capitalism is the invisible hand. This is just the way it works. You don't have to think about yeah, it. Yeah. And we're going to have to wrap up now, but I, I, I love the indictment of NAFTA and a lot of the, the critique in your book that's coming, that comes through the characters. And it's just such a gripping story. Thank you, Farah. Uh, you have been a wonderful uh, interlocutor. Uh, and thanks for joining this discussion. Thanks so much for having me. And I can't wait to, to read your book. Oh, thanks again. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast about books. Each episode delves into news about the nonfiction book publishing industry with publishing experts and insiders. 
You'll also hear reports on the latest nonfiction bestsellers, trends, and book reviews. About books. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.